Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window starring James Stewart as Jeff, a photographer recuperating from a broken leg in his apartment who becomes obsessed with watching the goings-on of the other residents in his apartment complex. The film also stars Grace Kelly as his socialite girlfriend Lisa Fremont and Thelma Ritter as his nurse Stella who helps him investigate a possible murder. Um, so this is like one of the, the top Hitchcocks in a crowded and celebrated career of wonderful movies. Obviously we have both seen many Hitchcocks. I had not seen Rear Window before and this film was just a real pleasure. It's just really entertaining and exciting and interesting to watch artistically. Um, there is going to be a lot of informative academic insight from Morgan this week who has, you know, read books and everything. <laughs> Whereas I merely have, you know, my own knowledge. But yeah, great film and uh, starring two kind of Hitchcock fixtures who have been in several of his other films. So it's kind of a, a dream team going on here. And um, definitely I was kind of, when I was watching it, I was like, this would be considered either like a low budget film that no famous people would be in or like an experimental art film. And the only kind of contemporary movie I can think of that has people of this fame level was that movie where Tom Hardy like drives around in a car with a Welsh accent. Um, but this was like a colossal commercial success when it came out in the 50s. It was like one of the top grossing films of the year. And it is literally a movie where the protagonist sits in a chair for two hours and watches people out of his window. And it is really dynamic and entertaining and well-observed and... You know, it's it does it does make you think about things like uh, marriage, and when you shouldn't marriage, <laughs> like many Hitchcock films. Wasn't that the Scorsese op-ed that was doing such blockbuster business for the New York Times last year when he got into the Marvel kerfuffle? I think this was one of the movies, maybe Psycho Two, where he was talking about like film culture when he was coming up. That, you would go to this like movie theater and Rear Window was showing and it was this unbelievably exciting sort of birth of the new way of making movies that it was this incredibly vital sort of phase two of the medium in a way, right? Because it was this is still the Hollywood studio system, but they're starting to get into a sort of different zone of artistic experimentation. And it was, as you say, a huge hit, and it's just really interesting to think now about that, as you say, because this is such an odd movie in many ways, but it's also definitely constructed as an entertainment, and it is very fun, and you can watch it without thinking any deep thoughts at all, and just be like... Yeah. I mean, it is just straightforwardly like a fun movie starring really famous people, one of whom is wearing incredibly gorgeous costumey outfits all the way through, and it's this quite experimental from a technical perspective film that is very directly kind of commenting on the concept of film. Yes. So the basic plot set up very briefly before we start out is that Jimmy Stewart, as we said, plays this photographer, Jeff, who's broken his leg and he's stuck in his apartment. And he has this girlfriend, Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, who is this obviously very beautiful and fashionable socialite. And she keeps coming over to his apartment and she wants them to get married. And he is just like, oh, this woman won't leave me alone. <laughs> like, It's never going to work out between us because he's an adventurous, daring photographer and she likes dresses. We'll get into that more. The whole relationship, I was watching this film like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. 
but so that's the sort of interpersonal dynamic between them. And then there's the nurse who's mostly comic relief, but she also gets involved in the plot a bit. And that's so fun. Thelma Ritter, the most Oscar nominated actress. She was nominated for six supporting actress Oscars. Well, Meryl Streep has been nominated for like 21. So really? Meryl Streep has been nominated, yes, for, for many. God, so. well, you know, at the time, I guess, very <laughs> impressive to have six then. Nowadays, you know, it's just it's just inflation these days, you know? <laughs> the Oscar economy is a disaster. We need more Oscar scarcity. But yes, Thelma Ritter is really great in this too. And so Jimmy Stewart is watching all of these people in the other units of this sort of garden apartment complex type setup in the West Village. And he believes that he has not literally witnessed a murder in one of the units opposite him, but that he has deduced that the man who lives there has killed his wife, who is an invalid in bed. And he brings on his old war buddy, who is a cop uh, detective, to try to help figure out what's going on. And there isn't really enough evidence to prove it. And then this sort of goes on and on and things happen. So it's constructed around this mystery of like, did this guy really do it or not? And I saw this in my first film class ever, my first semester of college. And that was like 12 years ago. And I was watching this and I could not remember the outcome of the movie, which we won't spoil right up top. We'll talk about it at the end, but I mean, I I had no idea what happened. Yeah. And I was like, is the guy really a murderer or is it all in his head like I could not recall and they do a very good job of having it be kind of ambiguously like is this guy just paranoid and making stuff up because he's bored or is there actually something really nefarious going on and you don't find out the answer to that until the very end but the other people who live in the apartment building also have little personalities and fun stuff happening so there's lots going on to keep the movie entertaining even when the central plot isn't just you know that And Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly are on screen most of the time. So that also helps. Uh, Have you seen many of the other Hitchcock films that the two of them did separately? This is the only one they did together. So I've seen Vertigo. Yeah. But I've not seen the other films he did with Grace Kelly or Jimmy Stewart. I've just seen various assorted Hitchcocks. So I've seen, I've seen Psycho and a few others. So I haven't seen all of these. The first one that, Jimmy Stewart did with Hitchcock was Rope, which is a couple years before this, and that is uh, famously the one that's meant to look like a single shot, yeah. which obviously they, I mean, even now when they claim they do that, they're not doing that, but back in the day when they had to shoot on film, they really couldn't do that because it had to be like 12 minutes or whatever. But um, but it's meant to look like that, and it's also about a murder, and the whole thing is about the the couple who I think is, who I think did the murder, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, is this gay couple, and it's they obviously can't say that explicitly because it's made in 1949 or 1950 or something, but it's clearly implied that that's the case. And apparently they never, no one could quite tell ever how much Jimmy Stewart was aware of the fact that that was the subtext of the movie. Like they said they didn't, he didn't know, but maybe he did. It's like the old Charlton Heston where Charlton Heston was like, no funny business here. And his co-stars were like, it was all funny business. <laughs> yeah. But Rope is great. That would be a fun one to do an episode on someday. Um, I've only seen that once, but it's excellent. The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is garbage. Um, Tim, Jerry Stewart and Doris Day, Hitchcock remaking a movie that he had made in England 
years before because he had the career in the UK and then he moved to Hollywood in 1940. And uh, it is so long. It's so long. And it is nonsense. So racist. But also, like, it just is bad. Uh, I watched it over Christmas a couple years ago and was just like, what is happening? So that's the sort of nadir of this this set, I would say. And then Vertigo is the last one they do together. Grace Kelly only made 11 movies ever, which is, like, crazy. And the ones she did with Hitchcock were Dial M for Murder, which is also 1954, the same year that Rear Window came out. I have not seen that. And then To Catch a Thief, which uh, is the next year, which I saw a couple of months ago and is totally fun. Cary Grant plays a cat burglar, but it's not as good as this. But watching this now really made me, and the To Catch a Thief recently, made me think a lot about how she was positioned against these other stars. And so like Jimmy Stewart is middle-aged in this movie in a way that actors are not middle-aged anymore because they have yeah. to have abs. I was also thinking about that a lot during this film because it's like he yeah. has gray hair and sort of the gray hair window has changed a lot in the past like 50 years of pop culture. Like you can be like a silver fox, but most middle-aged men in Hollywood are definitely colouring their hair which I think for some reason still like goes over the head of most people like when people are like oh Paul Rudd's not aged which I realise is my fucking bugbear but Paul Rudd has aged and Paul Rudd almost certainly colours his hair he's a he's a middle-aged man but yeah in this you've got like there's a 20 year age difference between Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly she is just this like perfect sort of ice queen is the archetype and the age gap definitely plays into this like his role in this because his whole argument is like he's this like action hero who's too rugged and she like can't keep up with him because she just still wants to like be all prissy and stay in the city or whatever and it's like you're gonna have to retire in like five years so okay (laughs) but i don't think the movie acknowledges that no it doesn't but also like i we can discuss the relationship at more like later but i was like not in the sense that i thought it was a bad relationship or like a weird it was just like very puzzling to me because i was like yeah are they a couple? Like, they are a couple. Because the whole premise of the film is that they are a couple and she wants to get married and he doesn't want to get married. But it's like, where's the appeal? <laughs> so... Right. And I mean, the thing that I fixated on immediately is that he has this nurse coming who's kind of doing rehabilitation stuff with him while he's in this cast. And she's giving him a massage. And so he has his shirt off right at the beginning and is kind of leaning down over um, his bed to get his massage. And he's just got like a middle-aged man chest because he's a human. Yeah, he's like, he looks like an average 50-year-old man. <laughs> yes. And then he's like, Grace Kelly is this like paragon of, you know, beauty, right? She's this sculpted goddess. <laughs> right. And I remember watching this as an 18-year-old And I had never seen Jimmy Stewart in anything before. My parents weren't into classic movies. And I'm sure I had no idea who he was before I saw this movie. And I was just like, what is this? (laughs) Like, who is this old man? Right? I'm so confused. And I think I I saw Vertigo in college also. And it's a great movie, obviously. And it's doing something very different from this in terms of him, too. But I still was like, oh, yeah, Jimmy Stewart, kind of like old guy. And then when I, a couple years ago, got really into the sort of 1930s, 40s era movies, he's obviously younger in those films. And in a lot of the romantic comedies, he's playing this kind of boyish charm. He's super charming. Yeah. So he is also charming in the Hitchcock movies, but I think it really helps if you have an image of him as like a 28-year-old when you're watching these, because it just 
plays on something in your memory in your head to be like, oh yeah, it's Jimmy Stewart. And certainly when I rewatched Vertigo after having seen a lot of those movies, I was just like liked him immediately, which then the movie is playing against because he's an asshole. But watching this again, I was expecting to feel that more. And I was still like, no. I did because I didn't because I was watching it being like, oh, here's good old Jimmy Stewart. And I was like, no, it's not here. And it's not in the sense that they made a mistake, but it was just like, it's a very peculiar dynamic. Yes. And the thing I kept thinking all the way through this is that like there are ways to play like a relationship where there's like, especially if it's like an age difference like this, where it's like there's a younger woman who's into like an emotionally distant older man and kind of part of the appeal is like finally persuading him to like you and the fact that he's disinterested is sort of, that is like the, the challenge and stuff, right? But in this, he's not like sexy and disinterested. And he's, it's, it's really is like, he's just like, I don't really need you to be in the same room as me right now. Well, I think it's because it's not written about an older man as such, right? So Grace Kelly's, well, this is her, her signature role, I would say. Like, Rear Window is her biggest movie. But two of the other big ones are To Catch a Thief, which I just mentioned, which, which she's playing opposite Cary Grant, who is older than Jimmy Stewart. Not by a couple of years. And then she also was in High Noon where she's playing Gary Cooper's like brand new wife who is older than both of them. Ah, Hollywood. <laughs> and it is a situation where like the sort of gold... This this movie you'd still kind of think of as like a gold age Hollywood movie, right? Because it's got the big stars and it's, you know, old fashioned, whatever. But golden age of Hollywood is really... 30s and 40s like that's what we think of when we think of those movies and the male stars of that period keep going for a while because they're men so they're allowed to do that and the women age out of the romantic lead roles because they get old and therefore no one wants this is a classic leonardo dicaprio situation yeah and so then they have to find new women to put in. And so Audrey Hepburn had this happen to her a bit too. She was opposite Humphrey Bogart and Sabrina. She was opposite Cary Grant in a movie where he's like, I haven't, I can't remember which one I'm thinking of. Is it Charade? He's like old. I haven't seen it, but it's weird. And they, but they couldn't let go of Jimmy Stewart, which I understand. Like, why would you not want him to be in your movies? But it, you wind up with this weird situation where there's this inherent imbalance not in the performances like she's great and the character is great but it just feels very odd i think and um needless to say uh she left hollywood and became a princess because i imagine there was some frustration with some of this i could understand i mean i don't know anything about her biography really but um it must have been weird just feels weird so yeah i think the movie is very self-aware about a lot of things and a lot of the gender stuff is very interesting which we'll get into but i think there is a level at which it is not about some of that, including the age gap, which is interesting because it's using their star power in very effective ways. But when you combine them together, there's this kind of odd, like, what? I mean, the one thing that like really lingers from Jimmy's sort of the the way that you envision Jimmy as like a star is that he's so dynamic. And that's part of why this is such an exciting role for him, because it's like he is literally physically unable to move. He is in this chair with a broken leg for the entire movie. And all of his sort of physicality has to be boiled down into sort of his head gestures and the way he like moves his eyes and stuff, because this whole Mm -hmm. movie is obviously about like watching and reacting to stuff you're watching. And there's just so much kind of expressiveness just in that. And I can only imagine how exciting that was for him as a performer to like sign up for this role and be like, yes, I will not be clicking my heels this time. (laughs) Yes. 
Would you like to talk about the clothing in the movie before we get into some of the headier stuff? Because I think it plays a lot into what Grace Kelly is doing and how she's presented in the film in a way that is uh, helpful to understand what else the movie is doing. Uh, Because the clothes are amazing. They're so good. Yeah, so this is is costumed by Edith Head, who is basically the most famous costume designer who has ever lived. Um, She was working for years and years and years and years in Hollywood. She worked with Alfred Hitchcock on several movies. She costumed for Grace Kelly several times. And this is like up there in the sort of top 10 like Hollywood movie dresses. Grace Kelly wears like five or six outfits over the course of the film. And because her character is like a model and kind of fashion industry person, she's really on the cutting edge. And there's one particular dress in this where even though I didn't know what happened in the film and I hadn't seen it before, as soon as she walked in in her like big dress with like a white skirt and a black bodice, I was like, oh, it's the dress. Watching this film, you can really precisely date it in like the fashion timeline. It's like a kind of archaeological dig practically. You can see like the strata of what was going on because um, her costumes are perfectly placed in the 1950s as kind of the peak of the new look, which was this post-war fashion era where kind of during the war, fashions were obviously quite conservative. There was rationing um, in Europe and America, that kind of thing. So, you know, you had like tighter skirts and everything was a bit more tailored and conservative because it was wartime. And then after the war ended, um, Dior in France developed this look that was more to do with like a big skirt and a pinched in waist and sort of an hourglass figure. And that develops into what we think of as sort of the stereotypical, really hyper-feminine 1950s fashions. And in this, the dress that she is wearing, it's like, this is a period when fashion was much more kind of static. There was one or two styles which were the fashion of the year, unlike now where everyone just wears like whatever. And this was literally like she was wearing clothes that hadn't arrived on the runway yet because Edith Head understood fashion so much and understood that this character had to be really cutting edge. So she is like pristine in every scene. She's very clearly dressed up. She's wearing costumes that are like for the stuff that she's doing so when you f- she first comes into the movie she's really formal and as glamorous as possible and she's bringing this like beautiful catered meal for Jimmy Stewart to eat in his apartment which he like rebuffs because he's an asshole and then later on once he kind of becomes obsessed with this idea of the murder and she kind of gets embroiled in this as his little true crime buddy she starts wearing like more practical outfits because now she's his girl Friday and she's going to be the psychic and then it kind of ends with her wearing like the most practical outfit of all so they've definitely kind of gone into this as her being a character who's very conscious by her appearance and then by comparison you just have Jimmy Stewart wearing literally pajamas for the whole movie and like because the first one in the first few like days he's just wearing the same pajamas I'm like he can't shower so he's like unwashed he's so gross he's getting these daily massages from the nurse but there's no evidence that he's particularly hygienic and I'm like just another one to tick off the list of why it's a bit puzzling why he is meant to be this really appealing romantic object Um, but yeah in total Total, very beautifully costumed film and um, also there's some really great looks on the secondary characters who are all what you, you see them all through the window they have relatively minimal dialogue because you can only hear what Jimmy Stewart can hear through the window when they're outside so you've got you know, there's this middle-aged sculptor um, who's is great. You know, she's wearing this sort of like 1950s bikini and it's just like a totally average looking middle-aged woman. And then you've got Miss Lonely Hearts, who's this woman who's kind of dining alone because she's single and tragic, who has this very distinctive kind of green 
uh, 1940s, 50s kind of noir outfit. And it's like, ah, oh, so many great looks. And because it's in Technicolor, it's all like really bright in a way that you do not see in contemporary movies. Yeah. Part of what makes all of those secondary characters and their little narratives work it just all fits together really well. Like the actors do a very good job of kind of pantomiming in a big way to make you feel the emotions and it's shot well and it's set deck is good, but the costumes being so distinctive yeah. helps a lot to have you keep track of like, okay, I understand what these people are feeling all the time. Um, well, it's kind of like the difference between both costuming and also performance on stage versus on camera. Because like when you're performing for close up, it's very different from when you're performing for someone who's like a hundred feet away in the audience. And the same goes for kind of costuming and body language. And in this, you've got, you know, you've got Jamie Stewart and Grace Kelly who are just giving like a traditional movie performance because they are being shot in close up. And then everyone who is outside is being shot from like across the road so they've all got to be giving performances where you get a lot of their personality through pantomime and just kind of the things that they're dressed as so like a couple of them are just really sort of over the top figures like the dancing girl is nicknamed Miss Torso because Jimmy Stewart is just nicknaming these people he doesn't know it's just this like absurdly sexy ballerina who's just like always dancing around her apartment in her underwear (laughs) and then you've got sort of the prospective murderer who's this very sort of like heavy-footed sort of middle-aged man stomping around his house. And the the composer who's yes. like dramatically throwing himself around because <laughs> he can't find inspiration and like drinking and then he throws a big party and it's like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very it's very New York. Yes. <laughs> and I was just all the way through I was just like loving just the fact that it's all fake. It's this thing where it's like there's this long period of Hollywood history obviously where everything as much as possible is filmed on a set and in this they filmed this incredibly they built this incredibly elaborate set which is just creating this whole street where you can see through the windows like their little tv tv screens or stages and then you know they've got to have rain so the whole thing's got to be drained i don't know about the technical stuff but like fucking complicated it's got to have daytime and nighttime and it is so kind of immersive and realistic but at the time at the same time it's kind of like watching a vintage Hollywood musical or just watching a stage show because you know that it's not real but also that doesn't matter it just did make me think a little bit about kind of the CGI situation now where the rationale is that it's better because it looks more real if you do it right but for the most part like we know that a spaceship isn't real so it doesn't really matter and I really enjoy the aesthetic of when you've just built like the whole set from scratch and I would love to see more movies where you have that because it just adds a certain something and for certain types of story that kind of staginess actually like helps yes and it's completely in keeping with the themes oh uh absolutely the film which brings me to my little film theory lecture yes time to learn (laughs) yeah so i have sort of translated this down in the notes to sort of like normal people talk kind of, and I'm going to attempt to do that even further as we discuss. So hopefully this will be accessible to people. And also hopefully I don't like butcher what uh, Laura Mulvey, the great film theorist still with us, uh, was writing in her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which is like one of the most classic texts of film studies. Uh, published in 1975, which was a period at which obviously lots was happening in Hollywood and outside of Hollywood in terms of kind of 
upending the system and also in terms of feminism and feminist theory. And so she's kind of partaking in a lot of that. And this essay is specifically about how we interact with film on a sort of psychoanalytical level. So the essay itself, which is quite short, there's a lot of stuff about like the castration anxiety, etc., which I am not going to get into. But uh, this is where the term male gaze comes from, basically. And that is something that gets thrown around so much in general discussions of pop culture these days that I thought it would be perhaps illuminating to some of our listeners to get a little bit of information about the source of that. I'm sure we have talked about that many times on this podcast. And she specifically talks about Rear Window in this essay. When we watched Rear Window in my college class, we read this piece of criticism, which I think is a common thing for film students. So I'll try to just give you a little bit of a dose of that for people who are interested. So her basic argument is that traditional Hollywood cinema, starting in the 30s and 40s, but continuing into the period when she's writing, uh, that the success of that largely depends on, her quote is, it's skilled and satisfying manipulation of visual pleasure, and that that is being built inside of a patriarchal context. So that watching these movies gives us a sort of sense of aesthetic and sexual pleasure, essentially, and that it's all being constructed from what men find appealing. And that obviously has to do with how we see women. And her goal in the essay, and I'm just going to read this because I think it's interesting, is to sort of deconstruct that, not in favor, she says, of a reconstructed new pleasure, but to make way for a total negation. The alternative is the thrill that comes from leaving the past behind without rejecting it, transcending outworn or oppressive forms, or daring to break with normal pleasurable expectations in order to conceive a new language of desire. So I wanted to read that because I think you see a lot of stuff in like general film writing about like the female gaze, which has nothing to do with Rear Window. I just thought I would throw this in. Um, And her point basically is that you don't want to reverse the system that exists, but just break it down and just start from scratch. So it's not like there's a sort of alternative to this thing that she's describing where like women have one particular way of seeing, right? It's that the way of seeing that she's identifying in these Hollywood movies that's very objectifying is bad and we shouldn't do it. Uh, Which some film writers uh, have not taken up in their discussion of female-directed films, for instance. So the psychoanalytical components that she talks about, which come from Freud's three essays on sexuality, are first uh, scopophilia, which is actively objectifying the other, so like looking at an actress, right, and thinking about her as an erotic object, which obviously connects to cinema as a voyeuristic experience. So you're looking at these people on the screen and turning them into sort of sexual objects. And then also ego identification or the loss of ego when you watch a movie. So if you're in the theater and watching a movie and you sort of lose yourself in the movie because it's so immersive, then you're kind of putting yourself in the place of the character, which she argues is normally in the place of the male leads in these old Hollywood movies. Obviously, this is, you know, a large argument you could find counterpoints to and I love those old films, of course, but this is her basic thesis. And Freud's general theory about this is that those two impulses work hand in hand, right? So you're both objectifying the other and then also identifying with him or her or them. And that the threat of this in cinema is that it's so patriarchally dominated that the woman is almost always objectified. And Hitchcock, 
is really interesting in this context because he seems to understand this better than a lot of people. Obviously, he wouldn't be writing about it in this, you know, context, but he has all of these movies, including this one, but also Vertigo, where the act of looking and sort of objectifying and fetishizing women is a huge component of the story. So like in Vertigo, Jimmy Stewart literally like reconstructs this woman he's obsessed with, which is the whole point of the film. And that uh, the way he shoots things also kind of embodies that perspective of the male characters, but in a way that's kind of weird as opposed to just celebrating what I'm describing. And then she specifically talks about Rear Window, and I'll just read this paragraph so we can talk about it a little bit. So she says, Jeffries is the audience. The events in the apartment block opposite correspond to the screen. As he watches, an erotic dimension is added to his look, a central image to the drama. His girlfriend Lisa has been of little little sexual interest to him, more or less a drag, so long as she remained on the spectator side. When she crosses the barrier between his room and the block opposite, so at some point she goes over and sneaks into the apartment of the supposed murderer, the relationship is reborn erotically. Lisa's exhibitionism has already been established by her obsessive interest in dress and style, in being a passive image of visual perfection. Jeffries's voyeurism and activity have also been established through his work as a photojournalist, a maker of stories and captor of images. However, his enforced inactivity, binding him to his seat as a spectator, puts him squarely in the fantasy position of the cinema audience. So if we consider the movie basically as like a metaphor for cinema, then the Jimmy Stewart character, Jeff, is the director in a lot of ways. And the Grace Kelly figure is kind of the actress. But I think the movie is also doing more interesting things than that, which we can get into in talking more about the relationship, which we've already kind of been doing at the beginning, because that's the whole movie. But um, that's the little rundown of this film theory principle. Uh, which I hope made sense to my little audience of scholars, that basically it's just about how we desire things and process that desire visually. And I think this movie is largely a critique of that while also buying into it, which is exactly her point, is that you kind of can't escape that. And it's very explicit about that because, kind of as I said earlier, like when she becomes his true crime pal, like his, he only becomes interested in her once they are both sharing this hobby of being bloodthirstily obsessed with this potential murder. And you do see that he only really becomes like fascinated with her and intentionally watching her once she is in danger and sort of running into his sphere of vision. Because there is a scene earlier when she is basically trying to seduce him and is kissing him and she's interested in him and he isn't interested in her and they have these conversations kind of about his career where she's saying, oh, I can get you these fashion photo shoots and you can have so much work here. And he just has no respect for her work. And his career is that he like goes into war zones. Like the implication is that he broke his leg because he stood in the way of a race car during a race. And there was this photo on the wall of this like car blowing up right in front of the camera shot. So it's like he's just really fascinated and titillated by danger, but has no interest in sort of traditional beauty at all and that's all she can provide until it gets to the point where she can go and like break into someone's house and potentially get arrested or murdered yes and his cop buddy initially seems like he's kind of playing along with the 
possibility that this guy murdered his wife and then comes against pretty compelling evidence that that did not in fact happen. And so Jimmy Stewart gets very frustrated with him, but then his girlfriend is like, oh no, I think you're right. I am convinced. And once she becomes an ally to him in that situation, and they're both looking across as opposed to her looking at him and him looking across the street, then they're like into each other. And it's great because they both have this occupation, which is his interest, right? Like she has to kind of defer to his interest in order for him to become interested in her. And they are obsessively trying to figure out the like sexual dynamics of these other people to try to figure out if he killed his wife or not. Like she, her contribution is that she can analyze how the wife might behave in the situation. Like there's a bunch of jewelry that's still in the apartment. They can somehow see this. And she's like, well, the wife must be dead because there's no way that she would leave her jewelry in her handbag because women she's don't do that. She's giving the women's perspective on this mystery. Right. Although one of the things that I was just really enjoying throughout the film is that Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly's characters are basically idiots. Like it's not like they are really <laughs> yes. great investigators. They're just constantly just like these paranoid, like sort of ambulance chasers who have just like read too many crime books and are completely convinced that this person who lives across the road has like murdered his wife and sawn her up to pieces and buried her in the garden with like no real evidence. And whenever the cop friend comes along, who is hilarious incidentally, the cop friend is always just like, oh yeah, it could be that, except for this really obvious reason why you're both just talking out of your asses because you're dummies and you're obsessed with like watching your neighbors. And it just strikes me that like police probably get a lot of those calls. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, Jimmy Stewart is bored and amusing himself by watching these other people. It's the inherent comedy and tension of the film is that he could just be completely wrong about literally everything. (laughs) Yes. But the sort of Freudian thing about objectifying people and sort of fetishizing them versus identifying with them and the sort of roundabout of that, I think applies so much to both of them, which is where I think the movie gets kind of interesting because she does it too. And so they're both watching all these people and projecting onto them, basically, because they don't have any idea what's really going on in their lives. And it's not just the murder, although that takes up most of the plot, obviously. But there's uh, the young sort of newlywed couple who Jimmy Stewart watches very fondly because they're sort of sweet, young, you know, optimistic people. And then the you know, Miss Torso, the dancer, who he and the cop friend are basically just like lusting after because she's a hot young woman. Grace Kelly looks at her and identifies with her and is like, oh, well, I have parties like that with lots of men there, like in my apartment, but I'm not in love with any of them because I'm in love with you because they're kind of speculating about which of the men she's in love with. And it turns out, in fact, that she's in love with like a normal looking man who shows up at the end, the dancer. Um, And so she's kind of doing the same thing that Jimmy Stewart is. But I think the person he's kind of identifying with the most is Miss Lonely Hearts, who he's obsessed with watching, who's this like lonely middle-aged woman, but she's a woman. So he would never think about it that way. But you see him watching her all all the time and she almost kills herself and he like freaks out about to call the police so the sort of overlaps of how the sort of psychological identifications go but then also the sexual fetishes are are really complicated in the movie 
which I think is part of what makes it so interesting because the whole thing is about should we get married or not? Like everyone is obsessed with this. Every single character is just like, but marriage, because it was made in 1954. And uh, that was the only thing anyone did in the 50s was get married. Yes. Which, I mean, we've already covered a lot of the weirdness of the relationship, like, you know, between them. But there really is no earthly reason that she would find him appealing unless he's just great in bed. Like, that is the it. Except he genuinely doesn't seem interested in her. But we do know that they're sleeping together because she stays over. Yeah. Like, the movie clearly wants us to understand yeah, that that's happening. but it's just like, it kind of feels like it's like inertia. Like he doesn't, there's, because right. it's like with her, you can tell that like she is trying to seduce him. She is like trying yes. really hard basically to get him to like her and to persuade him to sleep with her. And he is just resistant, but in like a really apathetic, just sort of like, Ugh, go home kind of way. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's baffling. Yeah, it's really odd. And they also shouldn't be together. <laughs> no, it's it's ridiculous. I think this movie's great and really obviously intellectually interesting, but also as we keep saying, it is genuinely super entertaining. But the central relationship makes it just makes no sense. It is mystifying to me because we keep describing her as a socialite, which is accurate, but it's not like she's just going to parties. Like she is actively doing things. Well, she she is like oh i have all these career connections where i can make you like a rich man in new york because she is this fashion person and she describes her day towards the beginning and she's just like hobnobbing with all these manhattanite people who are you know you have like drinks eight times a day with different people from the fashion industry and she has her dresses flown in from paris like she is the kind of the point is that she is actually a lot more affluent than he is and she's oh, getting yes. these like expensive restaurant meals like portrayed into his house where he's just sitting around in his jammies, you know? <laughs> well, that's part of the anxiety too, yeah. right? Is that she has more money. And yeah. women are allowed to marry up, but men are not allowed to marry up mm. in these narratives because it just makes them too anxious. They don't like it. And he's got to have his macho man career. And even though he's like 50 plus or whatever, and, you know, her girly stuff, it's just, it's just not going to cut it. And again, he only kind of gets really interested when she's doing more proactive stuff in his world. But part of what is so appealing about her to the audience, too, is that in the end, she's just like, well, I'm just going to go investigate this myself because you can't stop me because you're stuck in your apartment in a wheelchair. So um, I'm going to climb up a ladder and just sneak into this guy's window. <laughs> you're like... It's like, are there no other men in New York for you to date? Like, come on. <laughs> but, you know, that does make him like her more at the end. But it's also, she kind of breaks the script, right? Like, she decides to do that against his... Yeah. Like, he's been giving her instructions about sort of slipping things under the door and making calls and whatever. And she deviates from the rule book at the end. And it really freaks him out. But also is the sort of clincher that makes him go like, oh, yeah, she's... She's the one. Mm -hmm. And he winds up with his leg broken again. And at the end of the movie, he's like back in the cast and she's lying on the bed in essentially man's clothes because she's in charge now, which is a very satisfying ending to this. So like, again, the, it's got kind of some weird ideas about gender stuff, but clearly the conclusion is that like this guy is an idiot. Like it's yeah, hard to I tell mean, how self-aware like, it is. Oh, he's but, great, but... <laughs> yeah. 
good old Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and what's so obviously so interesting is that, like, Hitchcock was famously heinous to the actresses he worked with. Most people he worked with, but specifically the actresses. And so, again, the idea of being able to kind of understand the weirdness of the, the film form in terms of its objectification and also the desire of these men to control these women. Like, he's just talking about himself, obviously. And so he manages to convey all that in a really compelling way. And I think most of the women in his movies that I've seen tend to be really engaging characters and not two-dimensional at all. Like, I think Grace Kelly in this movie is great. And just performance-wise also, like, this is the best performance I've seen her give. I think she's wonderful in it. But also, he was a monster. So it's like, well, I guess at least you knew (laughs) that you were bad. Like, it's just strange kind of inability to know exactly what was going on in a person's head as opposed to you know the other old directors who were awful and just didn't care so yeah it's great is there anything that we're forgetting i mean i hate dogs but there was a great dog in this movie there's a great dog really good dog role yeah (laughs) i mean it was very funny to me to watch all of these like manhattan neighbors like jawing at each other and you know hanging out and i was like this is not my experience at all well it's it's just very very 20th century new york yes delightful (laughs) well it's based on a real complex on christopher street apparently which is interesting because the whole time i was watching it i was like nothing in new york looks like this but also i do not live in the 1950s in new york so i don't know and this kind of apartment complex was they were building a lot in queens i think in the sort of mid-century yeah, because it's kind of like the tenements we have here in the UK. Like, I live in a tenement where, you know, there's a garden behind and then all of the tenements kind of surround it, which is basically the format here. Yeah. But, like, there's a courtyard in between the buildings. And yeah. it's, they, they seem very much like a, like a complex as opposed to, like, one, you know, street abutting the other. And the movie does a really good job of making you feel... Like, you get the sense of who all these people are, but also, like, keeping you with him in this alienated way. Like, it's all seen from him. It's not like the camera's moving around down on the ground floor or anything. And it's also very Greenwich Village-y, because, like, in this cast of, like, what, like, ten people, you've got, like, a non-specific couple, you've got, like, a working-class couple, and then you've got, like, a composer, a photographer, a ballet dancer, and a sculptor, so... (laughs) Uh, yeah. So, uh, we would recommend this highly, needless to say. I will link to the essay that I very briefly summarized if you are interested. It's a great movie about uh, being alone, mostly, in your apartment for a long period of time. But not in a particularly claustrophobic way, so it's kind of a perfect watch for the current period, I think. So... Thank you so much, as always, for listening. We have currently up on our Patreon a mini-sode in which we talk about various things that we have been reading and watching while stuck in our houses. And I have been writing some blog posts about uh, the same, because... Yes, and we will have more mini-sodes up soon, also. Yeah, because uh, we we do have things to do, but also... Like most of you, I would imagine, 
are uh, confined in our movements currently. So uh, we will be... And we are here to entertain you. Yes, we hope that this was uh, diverting and distracted you a little bit from what is going on right now. Um, uh, an extra thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we know this is a very difficult uh, economic time for everyone. So for people who have continued to subscribe, we really, really appreciate it. And we hope that all of you guys are staying safe and doing well and uh, watching some good movies if you can. So... Next week, we will be doing, at the behest of a generous Patreon subscriber, watching High School Musical 2, the fine American work of cinema. I have never seen any of the High School Musical movies. I was going to ask, because it strikes me as extraordinarily unlikely that you would ever have seen the High School Musical movies. I obviously saw them all when they came out. <laughs> yes. This patron, in fact, apologized to me, specifically, for requesting this. <laughs> so... Uh, I think this will be a very entertaining episode. Uh, again, hopefully we'll... I have no memory of what happens in High School Musical 2 at all. My main association with those films in general was uh, my younger brother, who grew up to be a sort of acapella fiend, listening to the soundtrack of the first one on a loop in our house for two years, I would say. And... I hated it so much for this reason, but I've never seen any of the movies. I am open to this experience. Looking forward to I'm, it. I'm looking forward to rewatching the second High School Musical, yeah. and we can discuss it. But we can discuss that kind of cultural phenomenon as well, because yeah, I feel like most of our listeners will be aware of High School Musical, but really, we cannot exaggerate how fucking popular the first movie was oh when it God. came out in the mid 2000s. It was the Rocky Horror Show for ten year olds. Yes, one hundred percent. There was a period when they were just playing it all day on a loop on one of the Disney channels for kids, possibly the Disney channel. They just like replaced half of the programming with just High School Musical on a loop. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, and we were, I mean, you obviously saw them, but we were like slightly older than the most affected age group, I feel like. Yeah, like this yeah. is not really for teens. Like it's no. a teen movie, but it's for kids. And we were right. teens when it came out. And my friends and I had an ironic or semi-ironic High School Musical sleepover to yes. watch it. <laughs> Correct. Whereas my brother was bullseye yeah. age group. So uh, yeah, we will discuss all of this uh, further next week. We hope you tune in. We hope you all get whiplash from the turnaround in right. <laughs> Will you be able to bring up Freud in oh, the high school musical Okay, too? you have now challenged me. I will be ready with my references to whatever the fuck next week. Be back. Okay, Gav, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, yeah, you can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I will shortly be reviewing various new TV shows from the app Quibi. That's right, Quibi. <laughs> Um, and you can find me on Twitter, as usual, at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>